0: following audio is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. Now I want to ask you a question, it's a rhetorical question, meaning answer this in your head, don't say it out loud. And it's an important question, maybe a question that you've been asked before or one that you've been thinking about. If you are a Christian, are you 100% sure that you are saved? and are going to heaven. Now, the Bible says in John 3:16, a passage that we understand well or have heard before, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. So what does it mean to believe in God and to have eternal life? And there may be doubts in your life. As you think of this question, and maybe through the journey of your faith, if you've been a Christian for uh, many years, there's been maybe a journey and the doubts have crept into your mind. Was that belief authentic? Was my confession and my acceptance of Christ, believing in Him, was it it real, was it authentic? Was that the Holy Spirit or just a lot of sugar that I ate that day? Did my prayer stick? Maybe I should pray it again. Maybe I should ask Jesus into my heart again because I'm not so sure what, you know, how sure my faculties were at the time that I prayed. Maybe I'll get baptized again just to make sure that everything is there in place. Maybe there have been some doubts like that in your life. And then there are some passages like the ones in in Matthew chapter 7 that says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of the Father. And so we see that the Bible says whoever believes in Jesus will have eternal life. And then we see in a passage that says there will be people who believe in Jesus, who confess Jesus, proclaim him, Pray the prayer that are not truly saved. And so John says in our passage here in verse 13, he says, this is the reason I've written these words, this book, this letter to you, is so that you can know for sure, so that you can have this confidence, this resolved assurance, that you can know today without a doubt, 100% sure that you belong to God, He belongs to you, and you have eternal life. The central purpose of his writing is, is for Christians to walk away from these words, having read them and understood them and and put their trust in what they testify to, to have this unshakable assurance of where they stand with God. And his readers, if you've been following along with us, you've, you've seen that his readers have become very confused because people have come into their life and different teachers, John calls them false teachers, and they say, here's what you really need to do to become a Christian. This and do that and do this. Yes, Jesus is great, but here are some other things that you need to believe and understand and to do if you are really a Christian. And you really can't be sure if you're a Christian unless you do these things. And John comes in and says, let's set it straight. I may be overestimating it, but I would imagine if we took a blind poll, no names, no recourse, no way of knowing who was writing it, how confident you were that as you stand right now, in your relationship with God that you would go to heaven, how many would be 100% sure? I would imagine that most of you would be somewhere under the 100%. Maybe 99, 98, maybe 60 or 50. Maybe even zero. Maybe there are some here that say, I, I, maybe some aren't even a Christian. and I'm glad that you're here. You're welcome here to learn with us all together. I've heard a lot of different conversion stories. I've witnessed a lot of conversion stories and this becoming a christian process i think has become so vague maybe a little confusing like what does it actually look like to become a christian what does it mean to become a christian some people are confused about their conversion story and some people have like they don't like their conversion story you know they say you know why couldn't i have been like a drug addict or something or like, why couldn't I have been a hitman? Like, why couldn't I have just had this really great story? Everybody has this great story. Like, they were just this horrible person, and then Jesus came into life, and, and it just really changed. I mean, gosh, I was raised in a Christian home, and I feel like I've always loved Jesus and known him. I mean, why can't I have a more exciting conversion story? So maybe we have confusion about our assurance because we haven't had this, this very public, monumental, like, crisis of identity that has shifted the way that we live in every way, and we, we don't really know, well, what does it look like to really become a Christian? Maybe certain circumstances in your life have caused you to doubt your secure standing with God because of how things have happened, some pain or sorrow or grief or, or surprises in your life that may have happened. You say, I don't really know. I, I used to think I was secure with God, but maybe not so sure. When my son Cohen was a year and a half years old, about... Um, we would do this thing where I would lay down on the floor, and he would stand on this ottoman, this kind of this coffee table ottoman behind me, and I would lay back, and he would dive into my arms, you know, kind of like a a trust exercise. A lot of laughs, a lot of fun, a lot of bonding moments. I think you know where this is going. And, um, one day I lay on the floor, it was something really fun, I lay on the floor watching TV and turning the TV on and, and lean up against the ottoman like I normally do when he jumps and Cohen just secretly, quietly climbs on top of the ottoman and the next thing I know is he's just supermanning off and so because my back is turned to him, I just all I see is just you know, this 40 pound kid just like clearing my 6 foot 1 frame nose diving into the carpet in front of me Like, no warning, I had no time to catch him, and just face plants it right there. How ready do you think he was to trust me again? To say, let's do that again. We haven't done it since. It's been a year, and we haven't done it. And now I'm not, and I want to use this as an analogy and and kind of create a correlation here between this situation and our relationship with God. Now, I am not the character of God in this story. That's clear, right? There's too many character flaws. There's too many flaws in the story to break down. But I think all of us are the character of Cohen in this. There's a crack in his universe when this happened. You should have seen The pain wasn't so much of him face-planting the carpet as the crack in his universe where he discovered that I was not there when he thought I was going to be. Like the first time that I let him down in a big way. First time he knew of, anyway. <laughs> now, a believer finds himself or herself in this constant flux where circumstances come into our life and we change and there's constant changes and experiences and personal struggles and personal confusions of so many different kinds that cause us to have this very fragile very fragile confidence in God and perception of his presence in our life and something happens and we can't help but say I thought you were there why did you leave and so I think we're like that character of Cohen where that that crack in the universe happens and we say I don't know if I can ever truly trust like I used to I don't know if I could have that innocence. And and assurance of salvation is important. Assurance of salvation is important to the Christian. It's an important thing for the Christian life. And John gives us in this final passage of our Everyday Jesus passage, helpful marks of assurance, helpful marks foundations of assurance things that we can rest on so that we can ask ourselves questions and we can answer them and having answered them in a, the affirmative we can know beyond the shadow of a doubt that we belong to jesus that we are born of god that we have eternal life no matter what happens no matter what happens has happened in the past no matter what happens today or tomorrow no matter what confusion or circumstances comes in we can know where we stand with god and so just so you know where we're headed We'll look at three, and here's how you can have confidence in your salvation. One is that you believe in the promise of God. The second is that you sense the presence of new life. And third is you see proof of the eternal, of the eternal life at work. And so we're going to see three. Promise, presence, and proof for those who appreciate alliteration. I usually don't do that, but this just worked out this way. Promise, presence, and proof. And so the first, we believe in the promise of God. 1 John 5, verse 10, we read, it says, Whoever believes in the Son of God has testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe has made him to be a liar. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. He reminds us that when we believe, when we believe to be true about Jesus, what God has told us about Jesus, that we have eternal life. We can have assurance, and not only can we have assurance, but John would even go on to say that this should be the discipline of the Christian, is to make sure that he is sure. Peter even tells us that in another passage that Peter writes. He says, make your calling and election sure. It should be the, 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 the work of a Christian is to get to that point where they actually have disciplined themselves, done the study, and they've convinced themselves by these marks that they are Saved. John builds a strong argument through his different writings, one in the Gospel of John and then in in the book that we've been reading, 1 John. Uh, Look at this verse in John 1, 1 and verse 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. And then in 1 John chapter 4, another verse here, John says, "...in this is love, not that we have loved God, but He has loved us." And sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And then 1 John 5 20, he is the true and eternal God. To believe in the promise of God, this is what this means. There is no other opinion of Jesus that we are given permission to believe than what is on testimony here that he is the eternal son of God, that Jesus Christ is the eternal son of God who died for our sins, apart from whom we have no hope of eternal life. And John, in so many words, is saying, you guys, there is no other opinion that we can have of Jesus. And any other opinion is a wrong opinion. So it isn't just what feels good for you. This is the promise of God that He's revealed to us in Jesus Christ, that He is the eternal Son of God, that He is God incarnate, the visible expression of the invisible God, for whom, by whom, everything is created. If we have seen Christ and know him, then we know God the Father. There is no hope of salvation apart from Jesus. And so assurance of salvation is is believing that Jesus is who God says he is. So the first question that John may ask us if we're wondering if we're saved is, have you stopped working to save yourself? Those are my words, not John's, but working through this passage, it's a good question or a good reflection question to ask. Have we stopped working, our, working to save ourselves based on what we have learned about Jesus and his ministry and his work for us? What does this mean? Well, John reminds us and his readers of an Old Testament story that Jesus applied to himself that was fulfilled in Jesus. Here's the story. Here's how it goes. It goes in Numbers uh, the book of Numbers, Moses was in the desert. He was with God's people, the Israelite people. They were rescued from slavery in Egypt. A million people wandering in the desert. Snakes come. A bunch of these people are bitten. Many of them die. The people come to Moses and say, how can we be saved? God says to Moses, I want you to make a serpent out of bronze. I want you to fashion it out of bronze. And I want you to stick it on your pole. And I want you to hold it up. And anybody who looks to this serpent in recognition of their of their of their ailment, and looking to this for hope of, of healing, then they will be saved. And, and the Bible says everybody who looked to the serpent to be saved, in trusting of what God said, they would be healed. And that's exactly what happened. Everybody who looked at this serpent by faith, saying, Okay, I recognize I've been bitten, I'm going to die. I look to this because that's what you've said to look to for my healing, and they were saved. Well, John, Jesus says in, in the book of John that John, our author here, records in chapter 3, he says, and Moses, Jesus says this, And Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus is saying, you know that snake that everybody looked to for healing? That's me. That's me. So in recognizing our inability to please God, our our fallenness as we sin, our brokenness, our need for Him. Jesus says, if you look to me and, and you believe what God has promised about me, that I am that serpent that must be lifted up for, uh, in, in place of people's sins for the forgiveness of sins and their healing of their soul, then that is what will happen. Jesus says, I am the snake. Whether we were born a Christian or, or not, the basis of our salvation and assurance is in the promise of God and what He says, about Jesus? What do you believe about Jesus? Do you believe that he was sent as a propitiation for your sins? Do you believe that he was given up? He gave up himself, his own life, for your sins? Or do you believe in in something else? Do you believe that you are working to save yourself? Do you believe that you, that God has done something kind for you, and now you need to work yourself by your own merit, by your own obedience, to be loved and accepted by God? What are you basing your eternal life on? Is it looking to Jesus or is it looking to something else? Maybe you've said something like this before in your life or know someone who has. I once was a bad person, but I got better. That's not trusting in Jesus. I had a friend growing up who really loved Jesus, and I remember I just admired their faith, and I always wanted to be like that person, so that's what I want to do. I want to be like that person who loves Jesus. That's great, but that's not resting in the promise of God in Jesus. Maybe you could say, when I was 11 years old, I prayed the prayer to have Jesus in my heart. Now, God can answer our prayers as we pray to Him, but it's possible to pray without truly believing. And there are some people who are outside of the sphere of forgiveness. There are some people who are not forgiven. This is what John means. There's this tough passage right in the middle of our text where he says there is a sin that leads to death and there are sins that don't lead to death. And this is what John is trying to do. He's explaining He's saying, guys, let's not be naive. Not everybody who believes, not everyone believes Jesus. Not everybody believes Jesus, and therefore not everybody is saved. Not everybody has eternal life. Not everybody is going to heaven. Those who deny Jesus as the Son of God who has come to us in the flesh, those who deny his work on the cross for the forgiveness of their sins, those people are outside of the sphere of forgiveness. Forgiveness. But he says, but he's saying, but, but that's not the point. The point isn't that we would say, okay, well, let's try to figure out who's going to heaven and who's not. The point is, as he goes on, he says, you do believe this. You do believe that Jesus is the eternal Son of God. You do believe that He is the promised Savior. You do believe and trust in Him, His work on the cross. You have recognized your need for Him. You've lifted up your eyes to Him in recognition of your need, and you've placed your hope in Him. So yeah, it's true that some people do not have Christ, and therefore do not have eternal life. But you do because you believe in what God has said. That's John's point in saying this. This is the important matter. Not to figure out who's going to heaven, who's going to hell, but to recognize that you trust in God's promise. He understands that we need to be reminded of this so often because we sin. We will continue to sin. And even though we sin from time to time, those who are Christians continue to sin, our sins don't lead to spiritual death because we believe that the promise of God in Jesus Christ is our sins have been forgiven. We have received His righteousness. has been given to us because of Christ's righteousness, His perfection. And then he launches into these three verses that all start with the words, we know, we know, we know. And this goes into our second point, trusting in the promise of God, believing in the promise of God and and who Jesus is. And the second one is that we sense a presence of a new life. He says, we know, we know, we know. You know, when you're having a hard time and you're confused, whether it's something in your career, maybe it's something in your relationship, maybe it's just something that has happened and you go to a friend and you just don't know what to do and this person is here trying to comfort you, that person will often say, come on, you know. You know, they'll, they'll start a phrase out like that to kind of to remind you of who you really are and, and what you truly believe and, and what is real in your life. Verse 18, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not go on sinning. 19, we know that we are from God. And 20, we know that the Son of God has come and given us understanding and we are in Him. So this sense of this presence of a new life means that we sense a change because we know that we have a relationship with God through Jesus. And it's affirmed in the presence of the Holy Spirit in our life. John talks about the Holy Spirit, the gift of the Holy Spirit, the presence of God in our lives. Verse uh, chapter 3, 24 says, And by this we know that we abide; he abides in us by the Spirit whom he's given us. Chapter 4, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we, are, that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his Spirit. And so, primarily... The basis of our salvation and therefore the basis of our assurance is the objective work of Jesus. Why are we saved? Because Jesus did this. Because Jesus died in our place for our sins. Why are we saved? Because the promise of God to us came true. We must believe in this historical truth if we desire to see forgiveness of our sins and have a relationship with Jesus. But then, when it comes to assurance... There is more than just the intellect involved, and that's what John goes on to say. It's more than just what you know. It's more than what you just believe and and what you um, assert your understanding to embrace. The presence of God in our life through the work of the Holy Spirit gives us assurance on a subjective level and through an emotional perception. So what does that mean? It means that It is good for us to emotionally perceive a change in our life, not just intellectually. Well, yeah, I believe this. I used to believe this, but now I believe this. But do you sense the presence of God in your life? We believe in our heart that Jesus really died for us. It's more than a Sunday school lesson. There was something that happened where I knew this to be true, but now I really believe that I'm a sinner and Jesus died for me. If I were the only person on the earth, I truly believe that Jesus died for my sins. I sense his love for me in my life. I feel his presence in my life drawing me to himself, creating an affection in my heart to love him more, to pursue him more deeply, to to respond to his commands with obedience. I have this desire for him. And it wasn't always there. I knew, but then there was something that changed, and now I want, I want him in my life. You really believe that you're a child of God, that you're an adopted son or daughter, that you belong to him, that you've been accepted. I'm not saying that all the trouble in your life and all the things have gone away, but I'm saying that you sense this inward reality, that you have God. John says, this is the Holy Spirit. This is the presence of God in your life. It's a real thing. It is this personal, spirit-filled relationship with God that causes us to grieve sin, to love Jesus, and convicts us of our need to respond to Him in faith, to believe in Him, to follow Him. Now, this subjective emotional element is most often recognized when someone comes up to him and says, so, says to us, I feel led by God. I feel led by God. This can be really dangerous. People can do some really horrible things by saying that and justify their actions by saying, hey, God told me to do it. You can use this for just about anything. I feel led by God to pursue this high-paying job in Orange County. God told me. God told you. God told me. <laughs> I'm supposed to do that. But it is when we feel that led by God, we know we have this conviction, we're feeling led by God, our emotions are in tune, we're looking inside of our our heart, we're examining our motives, and we feel led to respond to God in obedience to his word. That's when we know we're led by God, when it's consistent with what he's revealed in his word. Maybe you're wondering, I don't know if I feel the Holy Spirit. I don't know if I feel led by God. I don't know if I've ever felt led by God. Is that just my, am I feeling led by my own, my, my own intellect, my own experience, or is that really God leading me? Well, do, do you sense God motivating you to follow in what he's revealed in Scripture? Do you, do you read God's Word and, and when it comes to some, it says something about yourself or about God and you feel led to actually say, I don't know how, but I know I need to follow that. I know I need to believe this. I know I need to embrace this. I know I need to respond to this in the way that it's asking me to respond. That's the Holy Spirit. Do you desire to follow Jesus? I mean, do you desire to want to follow Him? Or is it just this really just kind of this grudge, this deep duty that you have to pursue, this obligation? Do you see fruit of the Spirit? Do you see this increasing in your life, this love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness? faithfulness, self-control? Do you see these, these fruits of the Spirit increasing in your life? Do you continue to believe and accept what the Bible says to be true? That's what John talks about in verse 20. He says that God has given us understanding to hear His words and believe Him. You know, a good, a good indication that the Holy Spirit is in you and leading you is that there may be times of confusion in your life, but you keep coming back to what is true. You keep believing God's Word. You're not completely tossed around to different weird beliefs and controversial uh, understandings of the Bible and different cultic beliefs. You believe in God's Word as He's revealed it in the Scriptures. You say, You know, I've heard some things, and maybe there have been times I've been confused by what people say, but I keep coming back to God's Word and I believe it. John says, This is the Holy Spirit working in your life, He's giving you understanding. So the sense of the presence in your life, it's good for us to examine that. And if not, if we don't have it, we should ask for it. We should spend some time with, with good introspection. And then thirdly, it moves naturally. And a third thing, it gives us confidence in our salvation, that is, we see proof of eternal life within us. A life of obedience, a love for others, an increasing shaping into the image of Jesus in our lives are all the things that authenticate the faith that we profess. Now, obedience is different from merit. We talked a lot about obedience last week. It's different than merit. Merit means that we are saved by our works. Merit means that God looks at our works and our, our uh, actions and bases our salvation on those good works. That's merit. And the Bible rejects that kind of understanding. Of salvation. But obedience is something else. Obedience means that our life responds to the truth that we profess. It responds to what God has told us. It responds to the promise that we believe. Merit attempts to earn salvation and forgiveness by doing good, and obedience instead flows from faith. And so, for the person who genuinely trusts in God, there is this posture of faith a posture of a person who trusts in Jesus. that They may be stumbling and making mistakes, but they're, they're stumbling towards Jesus. They're stumbling forward. There's a posture that is inclined to focus and fix their life on Jesus. Reading up on this topic and doing just some personal study as well, I, I discovered this book called Stop Asking Jesus Into Your Heart. How to Know For Sure If You Are Saved. And I thought, that's exactly what I'm talking about this week. Let's read. And the author, J.D. Greer, says something like this. He says, Conversion does not bring sinless perfection, but it does begin to make fundamental changes in the human heart. True belief in God does not mean that all of a sudden, overnight, we are now this obedient, perfect, sinless person, but it does mean that the posture of our life is inclined to look at Jesus, obey Him, love Him, have an affection for Him, and we change. Our, Our hearts are changed. What we desire changes. What we hate changes. What we love changes. And it must. That is why so often as we read through uh, 1 John, the five chapters, John says, how can you say that you love God and yet do this? How can you say that the life of God is in you and yet you do this? How can you say all these things? He's not saying do these things and that's what saves you. He says "If, if, if your faith is genuine shouldn't we be able to see it? James, the brother of Jesus, says things like this as well in his book. In the book of James says, faith without works is dead. A perfect life is not what John is aiming at. He is rather saying that in general, our lives must be an imitation of Jesus. And the person who truly has a genuine faith in God And has embraced the promise of God in Jesus Christ, does look increasingly more and more like Jesus. If we have a genuine faith, there will be a clear result of obedience in our life. And his obedience gives us great confidence. So let's look, I mean, let's take a sober look at just the result of these three, right? We believe that Jesus is who God says he is. He is the eternal Son of God who has died for our sins based of no work on our own, but by His grace. If we trust in this promise, we have eternal life. Eternal life is for those who believe in Jesus and what He has done and who He is and have has stopped working to save themselves and reach God and find friendship with God through their own work and have transferred from that place of posture to a posture of believing in Jesus. The second thing is that we sense God's presence in our life and we see a growing desire, this emotional perception that we love Jesus, He loves us, and we follow Him. And thirdly, we see evidence of real faith, like we're becoming a new person. We're being more like Jesus. We're obeying His commands. And the result, John says, the result of these three things in our life, we take them all together, the presence of them, should give us a very strong assurance, a great confidence that we are truly believers and we have, we have no reason to doubt where we stand with God. So much so that a person should never wonder, will I pers- persevere to the end? It should give a person great cause to say, I belong to God forever. I am his, and he is mine, and his life is in me, and now I live the life that he has given to me. My hope is secure, and I am held in the love of God and his power forever. And I hope that as you've worked through this passage, this has happened, that you have found comfort in these evidences, in these three things. You've found comfort as you look in your own life, but obviously it can accomplish a second thing entirely right so there is the person that sees these things and, and, and is just pushed deeper into assurance confidence oh he's saying all the yes i was worrying but now i see that those things are true in my life thank you jesus and then there's the other person that says oh man i'm like i'm batting like 300 on these you know maybe 600 i don't know two out of three what does that mean you see, this can accomplish two things. It can give us great confidence, assurance of our salvation, or it can give us great cause to worry. And this was the very intention of John's book, I believe. I don't. Uh, this is not a moment for me to say, you guys are just being too hard on yourself. I think I want to do what John is doing. He's saying, this is the intention of my words. I want to give you assurance. And if you don't see these things, you should worry. You should question, you should think. You should not just say, oh gosh, I'm just going to focus on... Uh, the part of the Bible in John that says God is love. And I'm just going to focus on that and just take that as far as I can. He wants to give assurance to the doubting. And he wants to give good reason for doubt to those who are sure for the wrong reasons. Does that make sense? He wants to comfort those who are unnecessarily troubled. And he wants to trouble those who are unnecessarily comforted. So there are some Christians who say I'm good with God, to, to which John says, You're really not. You're really not, because these things are not evidence in your life. You're really not. You need to think about this and you need to you really need to come to terms with it. And then there are others that say, I'm not good. I'm confused. And John would say, You actually really are. You're okay. You really are okay. So where are you? Maybe you're saying, I don't know. I'm so confused. <laughs> I don't even know who I am anymore. Let's put this 11-week series to rest, and let's also apply it really deeply to our hearts. I mean, let's, let's ask that question. Where are you today? Where, where does God need to speak into your life? Where do you need to hear from Him? What do you need to do? How do you need to respond? Because you need to. It, one way or another, you need to respond. If you're troubled, you need to hear from God's Word, and you need to hear, I have been feeling like I am not okay. And the reason I feel like I'm not okay is because I've been trusting in myself. But I trust in Jesus. I feel His presence in my life, and I'm increasingly becoming more and more like Jesus. I have no reason to worry. I rest in His promise for my life. And there are some who really need to, if you're thinking, I just always felt that I was good, but I don't see any of those things. You need to not feel dejected. You need to not leave here with your head low. You need to trust in Jesus. You need to respond by faith. You need to respond in the promise of God, the gracious and merciful and wonderfully beautiful promise of God. That when we don't stand before God on our own merits, that in Christ, our sins are not counted before us. But we are treated like Jesus, like the faithful son who lived the life that we were supposed to live and died the death that we should have died. That's the promise that God gives to us. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. Follow him, believe in him, believe in what I say about him. And if you do, you will live and have eternal life. If you are not a Christian, obviously when we talk about assurance, it's good to start there. If you're not a Christian, the first thing you need to do is trust in that gospel of Jesus. The gospel is the good news that the eternal Son of God has become a man, has accomplished what you and I have failed to do. God gave Adam in the garden. He gave him a commandment, and Adam failed at that. And because of his failure, all of his children after him, me and you and everyone in this room included, fell into his guilt and his shame and his failure to live up to what God has said. So we have this sin in our life. And that sin of Adam is our cause for all the sins that we commit every day in thought, word, and deed. And then Jesus comes, and the Bible calls him the second Adam, and The Bible says that where we failed, where Adam failed, Jesus succeeded. He obeyed the commands of God. He followed the will of God the Father. He submitted in all things to God. He lived the life that you and I are supposed to live so that in trusting in Him, we can have eternal life and all the spiritual blessings that He's given to Jesus. And then Jesus says, I share this with you. You become heirs to the inheritance, to the righteousness that I have earned. For the non-Christian in here, we love you. I'm glad that you're here. Trust in Christ. Not on your own merit. I hope that you hear that good news. It's not based on what you do. If you're waiting to become that better person that God will finally accept, there is, you, have to, you have to go back into the garden, take place of Adam, get it right. That's the only way. Or you can look to Christ, the serpent that has been raised, the son of man that has been raised up for our salvation, and you can place your hope in him. And I hope that you do that. I hope that you wrestle with that and trust in his work for you. And then for the Christian, with which most of, of you are, and to whom most of this letter was written to, the people in the audience that are reading this letter, they were Christians, they were the church, they were people had placed their trust in God. Do you have assurance, 100%, It's zero or 100%. Do you have a 100% assurance that you are truly born of God, born of God, that you really are saved? And if so, what evidence do you see in your life for this assurance? How do you see a pattern for spiritual growth? Look at those things. You say, yeah, I do feel like I have eternal life. I would say, how do you know? And are they the things that are explained here? And if not, do you believe that God doesn't want you, he doesn't want true believers to go throughout their life worrying about where they are? He wants you to be assured. He wants you to be confident of where you stand with him. Like a loving father would want their children to not worry if if he loves them or not. I want you to know without a shadow, beyond a shadow of a doubt, even in your own sin and the mistakes that, that you belong to me and I love you and you can trust that forever. If you have doubts, what it is in your life that is giving you doubts? And that's another good question. What, why are you doubting? And a better question is, what would Scripture encourage you to do? How would it encourage you to respond to those doubts? If there is sin, and you do believe in Christ, then I would say, then you should, you should repent of those sins. You should turn from those sins. You should turn to Jesus, and you should ask for His power to be made manifest in your life so that you can resist those temptations. Yeah, you should not sin. You should make adjustments in your life so that you are following Jesus and obeying Him. When you sin, your salvation isn't gone. You haven't lost the grace of God. But yeah, you should feel conviction about it. And another thing I want to say is I don't believe that 100% assurance is, is grounds for eternal life. I think that you can be born of God, have eternal life, trust in Jesus, and still have uncertainty but the reason this letter was written was to true believers who trusted in jesus that were being confused to which john says but you can trust but you can have assurance and that's the that's the direction you need to move you need to rest in the promise of god jesus knows your doubts he understands them and he's given you guidance he's given us guidance on how to address these things and deal with them So we find assurance in his promise. We find forgiveness through Jesus' work. We are accepted based on his merits, not ours. We're filled with his power through faith. And then he says, keep yourself from idols. I almost envisioned John writing this letter saying, oh, that was awesome, closing it, walking away and saying, oh, I forgot one more thing, and going, keep yourself from idols. Okay, now I'm done. It's like, what are you doing? What's going on in there? But I think it really ties in nicely, and it's the perfect way to end. Keep yourself from believing following, embracing, anything other than this. Keep yourself from orienting your life around anything that would tell you otherwise, that your salvation, that your assurance is based on anything but the work of Jesus. Keep yourself from idols, from serving, desiring, worshiping, orienting your life around anything beyond addition to what John has already said. And so it's a call to keep ourselves alert, discerning. This series is called Everyday Jesus. It is meant to keep you alert, on your toes, to be firm in the faith, to follow Christ, to worship Jesus, the confession of Jesus that is described in his word, without any confusion, without any watering down, without any variation of Jesus. It is a call to make Jesus our everyday Jesus. Let's pray. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com.